Cox Kaplan. Welcome to She Said, She Said. Poppy McDonald is the President and Chief Operating Officer of Politico U.S. In that executive role, she's responsible for driving the organization's growth, developing the business strategy, and executing the daily business operations of the company. She also oversees sales, marketing, product, communications, technology, and human relations, and has full profit and loss responsibility for that business in the United States. We'll talk to Poppy about her role, how she got there, her secrets for success, and how she and Politico are thinking about the evolution of journalism. We are delighted to welcome my friend, Poppy McDonald, to the show. Poppy, hello and welcome. Laura, thank you so much for hosting me. I'm so thrilled to be on the program. We are delighted to have you. You have had an amazing career. Um, you're currently the President and Chief Operating Officer at Politico U.S., but before we get into what that means, let's talk a bit about what Politico is. Folks who are here in the Washington area are going to know Politico very well, but some of our other folks listening may not. So what is Politico? Sure. Politico is the most robust news operation and information services focusing on politics and policy in the world. Uh, in the U.S., it's probably where we're best known. We started 10 years ago uh, specializing in covering Washington in a unique way. We felt like there was a real opportunity to come in and disrupt the market by covering politics the way ESPN covers sports. We felt like there were real fanatics who not only cared what was the vote or the outcome, of what happened in the Senate or the House or uh, the president signing a bill, but they actually wanted to know the pregame a little bit. What was the palace intrigue? What were the politics that were driving that decision? And then what were going to be the ramifications, both from a political perspective as well as from a policy perspective? And so today we have about 25 million people on average in the U.S. visiting our site each month. We have about 1.5 million going to Politico EU in Europe, which is really special specializing on Brussels, and we continue to expand both nationally in the U.S. We have a presence in Massachusetts, California, New York, New Jersey, Florida, Chicago, uh, Illinois, you know, places where there is local politics that really have an impact nationally and sometimes globally. Um, and uh, we, you know, continue to just really understand where people are craving information about global politics. Uh, policy and politics and what that means, uh, we're here to provide that information. So Poppy, Politico has been around about 10 years now. And when it originally launched, if I'm not mistaken, you were actually part of the original team. You've left, you took a number of different jobs, and now you're back. What has changed at Politico over that decade-ish period of time? few things. So I wasn't there when we originally launched okay. 10 years ago, but I came a few few years after. And at that point when we launched, it was really about our print tabloid, Politico, right? And it was about uh, delivering information to people. We had a site, but I would say it was at that time much more focused on our, our print publication um, and really launched with the, the presidential campaign at the time. And most of our revenue was print generated. Mm. Um, 
few years later, we became uh, dominated by our site and national started to get some national attention. And then most of our revenue was digital. But at that time, I think our uh, founders really had a smart idea that they needed to have other revenue means to support Politico, but also that there was a more in-depth way we could serve our market. And so I came about seven years ago to launch Politico Pro, which was Politico's first subscription business focused on policy verticals. We launched with energy, healthcare, technology, teams of eight reporters who were really dedicated to understanding what was moving from a regulatory and legislative environment, uh, covering it with that sort of fast-paced breakneck speed than which Politico (laughs) covers everything, um, and giving subscribers really access to being inside the room of understanding how were elected leaders thinking about policy decisions and what would that mean for industry. The whole subscriber model is a pretty new thing from the standpoint of offering your customers something that's specialized at a different price point. And how is that going and how do you view this evolution related to the bigger picture of journalism and news media? Sure. So I think for journalism, we have been that advertising model of you can monetize eyeballs that come to your site and consume your information for free has been a bit under threat as you've had um, other media companies come into the environment, but also non-media companies like uh, Facebook and Google who are competing for some of those eyeballs and advertising dollars and really doing an effective job of targeting those people. So while I think Politico still has a unique model in terms of the context around you're reaching those eyeballs, we have a very influential audience, members of Congress, their staff, people in the West Wing of the White House, coming and reading content that helps them do their job. We say we write for people for whom politics and policy is of consequence to their livelihood. And so being able to have your message, your advocacy, sitting next to information that's helping a leader do their job, we would say still provides a lot of impact and a differentiated value proposition on the advertising side. So that's still about 50% of our business. But uh, as we look to how do we best serve our customers, thinking about what's the information that they need to do their jobs that people are willing to pay for. So that's really our business-to-business model Mm -hmm. in which people are paying us thousands of dollars to hundreds of thousands of dollars to have access to 15 policy verticals that uh, we provide minute-to-minute coverage um, and a legislative compass where they can do uh, tracking of how are bills passing that have impact for their industry or for their organization and information to a congressional directory so that when they want to contact the member of Congress or the particular staff member who will have an impact on an issue they care about, they know how to reach that individual. Do you view your primary audience still as being a sort of politically focused, not so much inside the beltway, since you are now Mm -hmm. covering state and local governments around the country and also much more globally as well, but do you still view your primary audience being people that are really in the business of politics, or are you finding applicability beyond that, what was sort of the original core audience? 
So interestingly, I would say our editor would agree, we're still writing for a very small number of people. If we can teach Speaker of the House Paul Ryan something that surprises him or that uh, maybe because it's sharing something that's in the room on the other side of the aisle or maybe because it's giving him new perspective or if we can teach Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, something that helps him do his job or somebody on the West Wing. It's a very (laughs) high bar. So I don't know that 100% of our articles hit that every time, but that's really what our editor is telling our reporters to strive for. Now, what we found fantastic is that there are 25 million people who find that kind of information very relevant and interesting as well. So while we're not writing for those people each day, uh, we appreciate the fact that there are a lot of people in the U.S., especially right now, who are following closely what's happening in Washington during this incredible time of disruption. And so we are there to provide information to them about what's really happening uh, inside the room and information that their local paper is probably not giving them access to. Okay, so let's backtrack a bit. Mm-hmm. I want to I want you to talk a bit more about your role. You're the president and the chief operating officer, and that has a number of responsibilities under it. So talk about what you what is a typical day like? What do you do at Politico? Sure. So I would say if I boiled it down to its simplest mission, it would be, I am here to serve as the voice of our customer. And what does that mean? So in every meeting, in everything we do, I'm thinking about, is this best serving our customer? And what customer need is this filling? And so my role primarily is overseeing our current products, new product development, our technology uh, group, and our suite of tools and services, uh, as well as our uh, marketing department. And so I'm really, uh, through that, thinking about how are our current products serving our customers? What are the changes or things we need to do, uh, whether it's the platforms that we're reaching them on? Um, is our fully responsive site an effective way for somebody to track bills that they follow? Or is there a way that we can make that more mobile-friendly? I look, So I'm looking at data, and I'm also talking to our customers. So at least five times a week, I'm out meeting with customers to say, what do you need? What, how is our, the information we provide serving you? What can we do better? What are things you don't have now that, whether you think Politico can do it or not, would make it easier for you to do your job? So I'm really, every day, kind of thinking about how are we serving our customer and pushing people in, whether it's in a meeting internally, to think about uh, when you say you want to do that, what customer need are you filling? What customer customer has told you that that's what they need to do their job? And so that's really my, my role at the end of the day. How do you think about your role and really what is the interface between the news side of the business and the business side that you sit on? And what's the interaction between you and the editors and reporters at Politico? So I would say I'm on the business side, but I sit a little bit between our team who's going out and doing the sales of our product Mm -hmm. and our reporters and editors who are covering what's happening in Washington. So I'm a little bit playing the art of diplomacy in terms of understanding as we're out selling a product to our customers, what are we promising? Are we accurately representing what our newsroom can provide? And when we're getting customer feedback or seeing in the data that maybe we're not absolutely filling the need of that customer, what's the right way to go to editorial 
present that information in a way that never crosses a line, right? Because the editor- our editorial group has complete independence. Um, but to let them know, hey, we're really noticing here that people are craving more information about what's happening with space, um, what's happening in the private sector, how uh, Congress is going to think about legislating as uh, private companies are starting to you know, launch programs to go into space. And what does that mean? We don't currently write about that. Is there an opportunity? Is that editorial? interesting? Is that something we would want to provide? Uh, And when our editor says, yes, that's something we're really curious about, great, then let's go out and find a sponsor who would want to help us bring that to our customers. Uh, So we just launched a space newsletter would be an example. Uh, So I'm really sitting in the middle between those two groups, kind of negotiating what's editorially relevant and interesting and in line with Politico's mission that also serves our customers. So that sounds a little different than what you would find at a mainstream publication or news platform, whether it's the Washington Post or the New York Times or Dallas Morning News, that works a little differently where you're actually, you're you're doing good objective news coverage, but you're also seeking topics that are fulfilling the interests of your customers at the same time. Right. I mean, I don't know if it's because Politico is very focused on our audience and we know exactly who we're writing for, that it's uh, made us come together to understand that how we serve our audience and how we serve our customer at the end of the day is crucial to Politico being successful. And so there is an understanding from our editor and reporters. I mean, obviously, they are writing content that they want people to consume. Uh, They're not writing for, while they may be writing for five people, they are not writing for an audience of five. Um, they follow the traffic. They follow the interest of our audience. And where there are opportunities to share market intelligence, they're willing to listen and partner. And obviously, they are not willing to cross any line where if it's not editorially interesting or relevant, uh, they're not going to cover it. But they they really are open to that collaborative exchange about how can we produce products that are both in line with what our reporters are interested in and are in line with uh, what our customers are telling us that they're passionate about. Um, I would call it a Venn diagram of there's everything that's a big, you know, world of everything that's editorially interesting and there's a big world of everything that's sellable. Where that intersection happens is a a sliver, but where we can find and meet up there, we can launch really uh, amazing partnerships. So another area that I think is you know, you guys were really on the cutting edge. A lot of other news entities are doing this now, but creating live content to complement what you're doing on the news side and what you're doing with the subscription business. And one of the areas that I think is particularly relevant for our She Said, She Said audience Mm -hmm. is women rule. What is women rule? Tell me about sort of what it is and what the thought process is behind it. Right. So I'll say the extension into the live space, I think, really came from an insight our founder had that the best conversations were happening between reporters and their sources at a bar. And a lot of time that information (laughs) wasn't making it into print. And I will say (laughs) our live events were natural natural extension of let's take these conversations, so little of which can actually make it into a quote, into an article where we have limited uh, words that, you know, make it into print and let's extend that onto a stage. 
And so Politico Live started about seven years ago. And as we were doing these events, we thought, where is there an opportunity to really have impact? We were doing, obviously, one-off, really interesting policy events about the Affordable Care Act or about uh, energy policy. Um, But we thought, where is there an opportunity to really leave our mark? And at the time, uh, we thought about the role of women and started with the role of women in politics. Obviously, you know from your work at running the board of uh, running start that there are it's a very small number of women i feel like we're up to about 20 percent now uh, that are represented in congress but we're 50 percent or maybe 51 percent of the population Um, so why aren't women having the opportunities to have their voices heard how do you get elected where are their opportunities um, to learn from other women who have been successful and so we created this platform women rule which is about having a conversation with women who are in government uh, women who have risen to the top and it's really expanded beyond politics uh, to also think about women who've been successful in in business, launching their own businesses or being CEO of major corporations, and it's spread globally. So we are now launching in LA uh, in June. We're going to be in Brussels in October. Uh, We do networking events in Paris, London, and New York. Uh, So it's a really amazing platform where we're providing not only live events and networking, but a weekly newsletter, a podcast to have conversations with women So we're really proud of it. We're now in our sixth year of women rule, and it just continues to grow and expand. There have been so many changes in journalism, in the newsroom. If you had an opportunity to check out the movie The Post, Mm -hmm. depicting, you know, the Catherine Graham and her the role she played during the Pentagon Papers, if you had a chance to check out Amazon Prime's Good Girl Revolt about women in the newsroom, I think it was sort of a depicting Newsweek in the 1960s, which also, you know, the girls were doing all the work, the boys were getting all the credit, this kind of thing. Shocking. So, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really shocking. But we fast forward and things have changed dramatically mm. as we look at not only news coverage and who some of the most well-known political reporters are and were, you know, in the last presidential campaign, but also as we look at the staff roster at Politico, where you sit on the executive team along with a number of other women. So so talk a bit about the evolution and what that looks like from Politico's standpoint as it relates to women in leadership roles. Absolutely. So women are ruling at Politico too. So in terms of practice what you preach, I think we had a reputation of being a bit of a boys club and it is quite the opposite now. We are 51% women, but that's not just you know overall staff. That includes 50% of our leadership team are women. Our editor-in-chief, Carrie Budoff-Brown, is a woman. Um, we have our head of live, our head of our advertising business, our head of HR, our chief financial officer, they're women. So women make up 50% of the leadership team, they're 50% of our senior management as well, and they're 50% of editors in our newsroom. So um, we've had a really nice evolution of including women at the table, making sure that they have opportunities to have leadership roles and really uh, grooming them and growing them throughout the organization. Uh, So women ruling uh, at Politico, we've taken it to heart and uh, 
it's had a really nice uh, transformation, I think, from a, a culture perspective that's not only positively impacted women, but men too. So for example, we just put into place three-month paid maternity and paternity, mm-hmm. and men in our uh, organization are taking advantage of that at the same rate as women. And I will also say that I talked to reporters who we were able to recruit. Uh, one that came to mind is Tim Alberta, and he had offers from large uh, global publications in addition to Politico. And I said, you know, Tim, how were we able to recruit you? And he said, you know, Carrie, our editor, was the one person I interviewed with who really understood that I not only wanted to be a great reporter, but I wanted to be a really great dad who was actively involved in my children's lives. And she understood that and created a role for me where I could do both. And so I do think having women at the top has meant we can recruit not only great female talent, but uh, really impressive men too. Do you think some of these policies are as a result of the learnings and listenings through platforms like Women Rule? That's a great question. It feels like you're sort of at the forefront in terms of how you think about this. I do think balance in our organization came from several places. One, it's the media is still competitive in terms of getting the best talent uh, to stay at your organization. And so we've really looked at how can we offer competitive benefits as we're having the New York Times, the Washington Post uh, poach our incredible talent. Uh, How do we make Politico a uniquely great place to work, not just a place where reporters get their start and become stars and leave us, but where reporters really want to build a career and can have a lifestyle that allows them to have that balance. Um, And on the business side, the same. It's really hard to uh, recruit the best sales talent, the best developers, the product people who have created products for high-tech companies that can bring a unique perspective to a newsroom. And so how do we make a media company a destination? And so providing some of those benefits that not only include I see people who look like me, I can see a clear path to leadership here, but also there are benefits that make even a 24-7 demanding news cycle, uh, it still makes this job livable and workable with my personal life. Yeah. So speaking of personal life, and I want to talk too about how you got here, but since since we're talking about family and personal life and these sorts of things, you are the mother of two amazing kids. Uh, my son is 13, 13, and my daughter turned 11 today. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Happy birthday, Marley. <laughs> Thank you. Very exciting. Um, suffice it to say, you have a very big job and lots of responsibilities, and you have an opportunity to be a role model for younger women at Politico and elsewhere who inevitably ask you that question, how do you do this, or how should I think about starting a family, or when should I start a family? What advice do you give them around this notion of, you know, dare I say the word balance? It's really not balance, but how do you think about it, and how do you, what advice do you give to them? So my advice would be don't let the idea of having children hold you back. I think that Sheryl Sandberg, like, don't give up your seat at the table, don't stop leaning in before you have kids. But for me, having children made me lean in that much harder because I thought the trade-off I'm making right now of not being home with my children has to be worth something. And when they say, Mom, you know, why weren't you 
home every day after school, uh, they I can't say, oh, it was, um, you know, I was just going in and punching a clock every day, but uh, sorry about that. And unfortunately, I know for, for a lot of women, um, they are just trying to make ends meet. But for me, it had to be about having a bigger impact. And so it made me, I'd say, be productive every day in terms of how I'm spending my time because I want to get home to them as quickly as I can. But it also, I think, put some ambition behind what I was doing to think, um, how can I have an impact on the world, on my organization, on the people around me, such that I really feel like the sacrifice is worth it at the end of the day. I also am married to a very uh, supportive spouse. He also had a very active job on at Capitol Hill as a chief of staff. And the balance that we said was we won't, both of us won't always be at everything. And in fact, both of us rarely were, but one of us will always be there. And so we really made a trade of, um, okay, you know, it was a bit of a calendar uh, jigsaw puzzle, but who can be there at each event and how can we make, you know, that sacrifice. And recently, as I joined Politico, uh, he made the, the sacrifice to leave his career and to stay home with our kids. So I'm very lucky that way that he will always be at everything. And I make it when I can. And fortunately, my kids are uh, very supportive and, and understanding. And I think proud to come to my office and see uh, what I do and meet my colleagues and to understand uh, the impact of Politico and the mission. How do you talk to your kids about that notion of meaning and mission and purpose at work? Like what helps them understand why you're doing it? You've talked about impact, which is so important, right? It's, it's what gets us up in the morning mm-hmm. and keeps us going. But how do you talk to Marlene Gill? How do you talk to them about that? I'm not sure that I specifically say to them, um, I have to go to work now because my job is more important than you because it's certainly not but I think because the news is always on at our house and we're constantly talking about current events like they understand that what's happening in Washington what's happening with uh, when people get elected and what that means for our country and the impact it has is of consequence and that when I go to work every day it's to ensure that we can provide transparent information about what's happening in the world um, why it's important how it has an impact on people's lives is of consequence and it's something that um, I'm motivated by it gets me out of bed it motivates our you know the conversations around the dinner table and so I think they understand that um, you know mom goes and does this job and she loves what she does and it's not only providing for our family but it's making a difference in the world and that helps them to be supportive um, and understanding and I think they say you know my mom works and my dad's home to take care of us and that's just kind of how the balance works and uh, you know that's just their their reality. Okay so let's talk about how you got to this point. Um, were you always interested in the news business? You grew up in Salem, Oregon. So when did the news bug bite? 
So I definitely stumbled into media. When I was in college, my junior year, I went to the study abroad office and decided I would go to Nepal and Kenya. And when I went to tell my advisor, she said, I'll indulge you, Nepal, but then you're headed to Washington, D.C. You're a U.S. history major. I'm a little concerned you don't have direction. And she was right. (laughs) Uh, And I want you to go somewhere that's a little bit more in line with what you're studying. And so after, you know, living in a mud hut and trekking in the Himalaya mountains, I ended up in Washington, D.C., and opened a book of internships, and it was actually a physical book back in those old-timey days, and stumbled upon the McLaughlin Group, which was the first of its kind roundtable of journalists discussing the issues of the day. And it's something I had watched um, in high school as part of one of my uh, economics classes. I think the uh, teacher had a day off just to, you know, kind of put put the show on and said, you can keep up with current events. It's important, you know, listen to what these people have to say. And that had an impact on me, and I always remembered that show. So when I went to work there as as an intern two days a week, what was amazing was that the staff was six people in this tiny little office, and I really got that bug of, wow, what is happening in the news, picking up the paper every day to see what's moved in the world, and how are we going to translate this into a script for the show this week and let people know why it matters, what the impact is, is of consequence and what an opportunity. So my original interest in the media came from that experience of getting to work on this news program and write for the show and and follow the news events closely every day and uh, just got the bug that I wanted to come back to Washington, D.C. after that. So you didn't pursue journalism per se. You've actually had more of a, of a business background. You worked as a press secretary on Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. but then you made a pretty significant pivot into more of a business-type roles. So talk about how that evolution took place. Sure. So I was working on Capitol Hill where I was knew a little bit about a lot of topics, but I was passionate about healthcare, education, welfare reform, and started to look at uh, opportunities to pursue those uh, more full-time. And I stumbled across the advisory board, and they mentioned to me a business development role. The advisory board is focused on hospitals and health systems and best practice research. And no one grows up thinking, I want to be in sales someday, or at least I don't think they do. I didn't. But I realized very quickly that the skills I had learned, uh, both in the media but also on Capitol Hill, of taking complex information and presenting it to somebody in a way that it had consequence for them, that they understood the impact, was sales, at least that kind of sales, right? It wasn't selling a widget. It was selling to a hospital executive. Here are the trends that we're seeing in your industry. Are your challenges the same as what we're hearing from your peers in the industry? And here are some best practice solutions. So it was really a dynamic conversation and understanding how to create value for that person across the table. And that's how I fell into business development. And I really took to it, both from the perspective of it was about building relationships and trust, which came naturally to me, but it was also about conveying intangible value of content and helping someone understand why it mattered and how it would have impact for them. So sort of fast forward, how did you, so you went from business development roles, you worked your way up at the National Journal Group, you were ultimately president when you left, am I remembering that correctly? Yes. Right before you came back to Politico, where you had done a stint previously. So how did you work your way up into these roles? And did did the 
your sort of attraction to the sales business, did that help you tell your own story and articulate mm. your own value? This is a topic we talk about a lot, that women sometimes have a difficult time articulating their own value and then being comfortable sort of telling someone, here's what I can do for mm. you. What role did sales play in helping you tell your own story? That's a great question. So sales helped me continue to tell a story about the value of information and the power of that information. I have to give credit to the Gallup organization because that's really where I first learned to tell my own story. When I went to interview at Gallup, they have something called the Gallup Strengths Finder. And they said, go in and before you do this interview, go in and take our test to find out what your top five strengths are. And as you approach this interview, we want you to think about how your strengths as an individual reflect the value that you will bring to this job. What a great way to start an interview. It was really fantastic. And so when I I think women, but probably other people too, have a hard time articulating what's unique about them and how they approach their work, right? So I could say, well, I'm great at sales because I hit 101% of my target for the year. But okay, a lot of people do. What is the driving force behind how you did that successfully? So some of my strengths were I have relator. So it's my ability to relate to individuals, to understand who they are as people, what drives them, what motivates them to form that relationship. And so I realized that a lot of my success in sales had come through building trust with that person across the table, understanding their challenges, following up with relevant information that was personalized to them. What um, Another uh, top strength I have is communicator, right? So I feel very comfortable taking complex information and communicating that. And so that made me successful. So really looking at my strengths and then understanding how that made me good. And when you look at top salespeople or Gallup has studied them, their top five strengths are are all over the place. Um, And so it's really about thinking about how you as a unique individual based on your strengths approach your job and how that makes you strong. Yeah, I mean, that's a great, it's a great practice for anyone, whether they're going to interview at the Gallup Corporation or somewhere else. (laughs) That's a great way to orient your thinking um, and, and to really sort of get in touch with who you are and think about the value that you're adding. We talk a lot on this podcast about things like risk taking and fear and confidence. How do you sort of think about some of these topics? Let's, let's take fear and failure. Those are big topics that we grapple with a lot. How do you think about fear and failure? Fear of failure is always in my mind, so I'm not going to pretend like that is not the case. Um, And especially right now that I'm the breadwinner for my family, you feel a sense of weight on your shoulders like, wow, there not only is there an organization depending on me, there's a family who I love very much depending on me. Um, But I think how I try to get over that is I approach work every day as I'm here to serve our customers and I'm here to look out for my team and make sure they're successful. So if I'm doing both of those things and approaching that with a work ethic, I should be at the end of the day doing the best by my organization and helping it grow because we're actually investing in our employees, investing in products and services that meet our customers' needs. So it's really not a 
about me. It's about having an approach that takes it away from my ego or my success or me looking like the smartest person in the room. And it's about helping others be successful. Mm -hmm. So you use it as a motivator, in other words, right? I mean, fear is kind of a motivator. It's not stopping you in your tracks or making you afraid of taking the next step. Instead, it's kind of motivating you to do so. That's a good way to describe it. I mean, motivating me to, yeah, think about how I come to work each day and and maximize my impact, maximize the time that I'm spending there, and uh, do that by making sure that I'm putting our customers and our employees first. How about the notion of confidence? Where does confidence come from for you? So confidence for me, I'm not sure exactly where it came from uh, deep inside of me, but I'll say, I think as you know, I was born to parents who were 19 and 20 and who were not expecting to have a child at the time. And so I think for my parents, it was about uh, survival. So they were a little bit less concerned about like, is Poppy being successful? How's Poppy doing at school? Did Poppy do her homework? I really had to be very self-reliant from a young age. And I think that built confidence of like, wow, I can do this on my own. And I, I can remember like the first time I, I advocated for myself was in the fifth grade. I went to my teacher and said, I think I should be put in you know the advanced classes. Like you've got me at just the regular <laughs> level and I'm getting A's and I can do this fine. And she's like, huh, okay, well, have you talked to your parents about this? And I'm like, no, but, you know, they don't, it's, it's all good with them. Like, but I really need to be put into that advanced placement. She's like, okay, we'll give you a try and we'll see how it goes, right? And I think just that inner feeling of like, I can do this on my own and I can advocate for myself. Um, and I think, you know, I have to remind myself with my own children sometime, right? It's very easy to uh, do things for them or advocate on their behalf. And so when they come home and say, I'm frustrated or I'm not learning what I need to, to say, go talk to your teacher about it. Go talk to your principal, like go figure that out. Um, and, you know, really enabling them to find that same confidence and capability within them. So Poppy, what motivates you to do and be your best? What motivates me is feeling like the work I do is having an impact, making the world a better place, making my organization a better place, making the people's lives who work for me better, bringing value to my customers. So it's what motivates me is really service. Um, and I know that we've talked a lot about what motivates women to run for office. And a lot of times it's reframing it, not as an ego-driven, you're running the world, you've been elected to the top job in the House or the Senate, but it's really about service and serving your community. And I find that's what motivates me to go to work every day and to give it my best. So we ask each of our guests for their best piece of advice or life hack. It can be something that you really internalize on a daily basis, or Mm. maybe it's that piece of advice or suggestion that you give to other people. What is your best piece of advice slash life hack? So my best piece of advice would be be nice and work hard. And I remember going to my chief of staff in Senator Wyden's office, and I was trying to get some direction from him about my career path. And I said, well, you know, like, what am I really good at? Like, what would you say I stand out for? And he really had to think about it. And then he said, well, you're really nice to people. 
And I was so depressed when he told me that because I'm like, oh no, so what can I be, president of the PTA, which is also an important job, but I just wasn't seeing it as a path to being able to earn an income or to independence or to like a career that definitely made sense. But as I've thought about it, I think treating people kindly your colleagues, your customers, your friends, right? I mean, treating people with the idea of, um, I want, I'm here to help you, to bring value to you, um, with that, that kindness where they trust you, they know you'll follow up on what you say, they know you're there to help them. Uh, my former boss, David Bradley, calls it a spirit of generosity, that we should approach each other, we should approach our customers with that spirit of, I'm here to be generous to you. I want to help you. Um, that will serve you really well in life. And if you bring that with that a work ethic, where you're willing to do what it takes to get the job done, I would say will uh, can help you be successful in, in any role. That's terrific. Poppy, Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. There should be no question in anyone's mind why we invited you on She Said, She Said. You literally embody all the things that we're talking about around women's leadership, leading with impact, making a difference, providing us with insights. So thank you for sharing your time this morning. Thank you, Laura. Honored to have been invited. Really nice to have you. If you'd like to learn more about Poppy, please visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There you will find some show notes and some great photographs from this morning. And if you're enjoying She Said, She Said, please be sure to tell your friends, share the episodes, and please, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can also find us on our Facebook page, our Instagram page, and via Twitter. Thanks for listening.